kids can be dismissed to Children's Church. My name is Sherry Crawford, and I've been a member of Jefferson for about 30-something years. If you're visiting today, welcome. This is a loving church. You'll never find a better home. We're reading today from Luke 20, um, verses 1 through 8. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man... All the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Thank you, Sherry. I, I think all of us do, but man, I wish I had Jesus' boldness. I mean... These guys come in and, and they say, uh, hey, tell us what authority you do this. And he's like, Haha, first, you tell me what authority John's baptism is done in. And they, they're twisted. They're, they're, they know that if they say the wrong thing, they're in trouble. So they say, I don't know. I don't know. And so Jesus says, guess what? You don't get to know my authority either. But what's interesting about the book of Luke, what's interesting about the book of Luke is that the whole time, throughout the whole story of Luke, he's telling us by what authority Jesus came and by what authority he was teaching. So today, as we get started, uh, we're going to go through and look at a little bit of uh, this authority of Jesus. When we talk about authority uh, in our American culture, we bristle, right? Uh, one of the symbols of the American Revolution is the, the rattlesnake that says, don't tread on me. Like, what's the whole point of that, right? Don't tell me what to do, right? I'm a, the, now, okay, before you guys brand me a commie, okay, I am, I am pro-democracy, okay? But just think about the idea of democracy. What is the point? Nobody gets to tell me what to do. I get to tell me what to do by my vote, right? So my vote is a way of uh, self-determination, right? I'm in charge. Our whole culture is centered around the idea that no one can tell me what to do. Now, this has gotten so big and so vast that not only is uh, what, what I do up to me We've even uh, allowed right and wrong to become relativistic, right? It's no longer an objective standard. You can't even tell me what's right and what's wrong. What do we say in our culture today? We say, well, that might be right for you, 
What? That might be right for you, but that's, that's not something I'm going to do. Now, there are some things that are uh, amoral, okay, amoral, which means they, they have no necessary moral value, where we can say that might be right for you. Like whether or not you purchase a house or rent, that is amoral, okay? Well, if that's right for you, then go ahead and do that, okay? Or whether you take this job or that job, that's usually amoral. So whatever you want, but when it comes to a matter of moral truth, to be able to say, well, whatever is right for you, just go ahead. If that, if that works for you, go ahead and, and do it. That is all about this idea of authority. As a culture, we are, I'm going to use a word here, a rebellious people. We do not like to be told what to do. And I think at the end of the day, this is one of our big problems with God. It goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they had one rule set before them, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but what does the serpent say to Eve? She, he, he tricks her and when she sees that it's good for food and pleasing to the eye, she took it Oh, and, and profitable for gaining wisdom. That was the other thing. She, she took it and ate it. She had a problem from the very beginning with God's authority. But here's the thing with authority. Whether you acknowledge it or not, it exists. Whether you acknowledge it or not, it exists. I, I enjoy watching procedural cop shows and lawyer shows and stuff like that. I, that's something I, I enjoy watching. Every now and then, the, the, the cops will array, uh, arrest somebody that is um, a, like a government conspiracy theorist kind of guy, and they will say things like, I don't recognize your authority or your government. Yet, where do they sit? In jail, in cuffs. Does their recognition of that authority make one lick of difference as to whether or not they are under authority. It doesn't make a lick of difference. Your opinion about the authority in which you are under is irrelevant. But here's my question. Why, why are we resistant to outside authority? because we want to do what we want to do. We want to do what we want to do. We want to believe what we want to do. We want to have what we want to have. And we don't want anyone to tell us it's wrong. What we're going to look at today as we move through uh, Luke chapter 20 is we're going to see that Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he is the one who has authority. And whose authority does he come under? He comes under the authority of the Father. And if Jesus really comes with the authority of the Father, then we have a decision to make. Are we going to trust him and follow his authority? Or are we going to trust in ourselves and believe a lie that we have a measure of authority? 
to govern ourselves. Now, the entire book of Luke is setting up this, uh, this, this question. By what authority does Jesus do these things? And the whole time throughout the book, Luke has been answering that question. Let's go ahead and dive at the very beginning of, of Luke. We've read this passage several times throughout our Luke study. And I think it's a, a valuable place to begin as we look at the authority of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely, from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Why did he write this book? So that his readers could have certainty concerning the things that they have been taught. In other words, Luke wanted his readers to have confidence in the authority of Jesus Christ in the message of the gospel. Now, when, when I was preparing for this message this week, I went back and I read uh, several of the first chapters of, of the book of Luke. And if you were to just read through Luke chapter 4 through uh, 9 verse 20, you're going to see like this case being made for the authority of Jesus. And I, I think you could also say that the entire book of Luke is making a case for the authority of Jesus. But this section in particular, we see story after story of Jesus showing his authority. So what, how does that work? So in 9 chapter 20, we have this moment where Peter has this great confession that Jesus is the Christ. And by the time we get to 9 verse 20, all of us who are reading along should be like, well, yeah, of course he's the Christ. We've been seeing that the whole time. So we see that Jesus has authority over temptation as he is tempted yet without sin. We see that the people recognize that he teaches as one with authority. We see that Jesus has authority to forgive sin. He has authority over the Sabbath. We see that he has authority over the wind and the waves. He has authority over nature. He even has authority over the dead. He calls the dead back to life. Throughout the book of Luke, we see over and over again that Jesus has authority over everything. So what we need to see as we come to Luke chapter 20 is that he has, Jesus has been making his authority clear from the very beginning. There has been proof after proof after proof. I think at this point it, it probably took more faith to doubt Jesus than it did to believe in him. All you had to do was pay attention and you could see himself showing that he was the son of God over and over and over again. But when we are committed to our own interests rather than the interests of the kingdom of God, we are likely to miss everything that Jesus has showed about himself. When your real authority is yourself and your own desires, then you are likely to miss the points where Jesus shows you that he is the real authority. 
Now, where we begin in, in uh, our passage today, uh, we already read verses, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 8, where we see the, the, the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, these religious leaders come in and they ask Jesus the question, by what authority do you do these things? And I, I could just imagine like those in the temple or, or his disciples that have been following him being like, what do you, what, have you been paying attention? Have you been watching? He's been showing you this the whole time. But so that we can see the escalation of events between Jesus and the religious leaders, so we can see uh, his authority is absolute and that Jesus doesn't mix anything up, uh, we have this teaching here where, where, Jesus, or where Luke shows us that Jesus' authority comes from the Father. So what are the, these things that they're asking about? Let's go ahead and look back. To go forward, we need to look back. Let's look at Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 48, and we can begin to see why the religious leaders are more frustrated with Jesus' authority now than they have been in the past. So after Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives uh, on um, Palm Sunday, uh, the triumphal entry into town, he entered the temple, it says in verse 45, and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. He just came in there and just routed everything up, called them all a bunch of names. Other uh, versions of this in the other gospels say he flipped tables and chased them out with cords. Uh, so Jesus was pretty rowdy. Okay? And then he comes back <laughs> and teaches there the next day and the next day. That is some boldness, right? Okay, so like you can see why people are kind of upset with Jesus. He's come in, he's messed everything up. It says in verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Man, they recognized that what Jesus had to say was important. And they were hanging on his words. All the while, the religious leaders were furious with Jesus. And what did he do? He came in and he disrupted what the, the worship at, uh, at the temple. But at the end of the day, Jesus didn't really disrupt worship. That's what the religious leaders had, had postured themselves to believe. But really what was happening in the temple was an abuse of authority. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had abused their authority and they had set up a system within the temple in order to enrich themselves off the backs of the people. They began to cheat the people. The system that was meant to assist pilgrims as they came to Jerusalem for worship was abused by the religious leaders to take advantage of them, charge them more money reject their sacrifices as impure, all these things so that they could enrich themselves, leverage the Old Testament teachings of the law on worship, leverage teachings on worship to enrich themselves. And Jesus was furious. So was Jesus anti-worship? No. Was Jesus anti-authority? No. Was Jesus anti the abuse of authority? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So Jesus comes in and he drives these men out and he says the way you're doing things is wrong. You have made a house of prayer become a den of robbers. So Jesus says he's going to destroy Jerusalem. And later we see in chapter 21, verse 6, that he's also going to destroy uh, the temple. That Jerusalem will be destroyed and the temple will be destroyed as well. Here's the thing that we need to understand. Jesus isn't just telling us that a place is going to be destroyed. He's telling us that he is bringing down those who abuse their authority in order to serve themselves. Now, I want us to think about that in terms of our faith journey. Jesus is going to tear down authority that serves itself. And I want us to think about how we leverage authority in our life and why we are so defensive of our own personal authority. We want to be the ones to serve ourselves. We're so similar here, so similar to these religious leaders that we are willing to take advantage of others in order to serve ourselves. That is an abuse of authority. Now, I just want you to think about that for a second. When you leverage your own personal autonomy, when you leverage your own uh, self-interest as your primary authority, that's an abuse of authority. When we leverage our authority to make ourselves more comfortable, to indulge ourselves, that's an abuse of authority. That's the very thing that Jesus came in to overthrow. Whose authority are we under? We're going to see as we move through that we are under the Father's authority. So the religious leaders did not like this about Jesus, that he came in and overthrew or challenged their authority. So they had this great idea. How can we trap Jesus? How can we trap Jesus? So chapter 20 gives us three traps that the religious leaders set for Jesus that he so expertly avoids. First off, they ask him, by what authority are you teaching and preaching these things? Uh, that's the first trap right there. They, wanted, they just come out and ask him. And that was the passage that Sherry read for us that we opened with. We also see that they ask in chapter 20, hey, do we pay taxes to Rome? And then we see a third trap where they, uh, the Sadducees try to ask Jesus about what marriage is like in heaven. Now, I, I just want to quickly fly over these and, uh, and show you kind of what they look like for a minute but we're not going to take deep dives into each one of these traps, okay? So this first trap that was set by the uh, religious leaders asking Jesus by what authority does he teach and preach these things, uh, he, he springs this trap right away uh, by calling their attention uh, to John the Baptist. If Jesus would have said right out off the bat, uh, I'm coming in here on my own authority or I'm coming in on God's authority, the Father's authority, they would have called him a blasphemer and they would have tried to kill him right there on the spot. So, so Jesus diverts answering this question directly by appealing to John the Baptist's authority. Uh, if, if the people say, if the religious leaders say that John the Baptist was from God, then they would have to agree on John's teaching. And what did John say about Jesus? Behold the Lamb. Behold the one 
whose sandals I'm not will, worthy to untie. So if they would admit that John is from God, then what are they going to have to say about John's testimony? That it is from God. So he knew, Jesus knew that, they were all, that the religious leaders were also scared of the people who revered and honored John as a prophet and went out to him by the hundreds and by the thousands to be baptized. So they say, I don't know. I don't know. They weren't ready to make a commitment on John because they, scared, they were scared of the people. So Jesus passes the first test. We're going to skip the parable and come back to it in just a minute. So then they, they have the next test come about. Should they pay taxes to Rome? Now, if Jesus was the Messiah, the one who's coming to overthrow Rome, surely he wouldn't throw his backing behind Rome. Surely he wouldn't become some kind of Roman sympathizer. And if he did, that sure would make him look bad to the people. Similarly, if he said, don't pay taxes to Rome, the Romans will come in and kill him like that. So this is this great lose-lose situation where if Jesus comes out on the side of uh, Rome, then the people are going to hate him and he can't be the Messiah. If he comes out and says, don't pay your taxes, then Rome's going to hate him and they're going to kill him. So this is a great trap. But what does Jesus say? We know the famous saying, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Now, this is interesting. What did Jesus just do? He just condemned all the money changing in the temple. He just condemned the way they were doing worship. His answer by saying, give to God what is God's, is an endorsement of the people participating in worship at the temple. It's an endorsement of saying, it's good to make sacrifices. It's good to give gifts. And these gifts and sacrifices are what provided for the religious leaders of the day. He's, he's saying, give to God what is God's. This is a good thing. So he comes out in interesting support of the temple because Jesus was not against worship in the temple. He was not against offerings. He was not against sacrifice. He was against the abuse of authority that led to corruption in the temple. So this answer is perfect. How can he argue with them? He just said to give to God what is God's. And he said to give to Rome what is Rome's, to Caesar what is Caesar's. So at the end of this test, who can bring charges against Jesus? Again, no one. And then there's the third test, which is just kind of weird. It's the test that comes from another group of religious leaders called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group of religious leaders that did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Uh, the, the Pharisees and most of the temple officials would have believed in the resurrection. So this was a dividing issue in the uh, Jewish religious community. So the Sadducees have this idea. They cook up this wild hypothetical using the law of Moses and the instruction that if a brother dies without heir, then it is the brother's job to take his brother's wife and provide an heir to take care of his wife so that she's taken care of and, and looked after. So they cook up this whole thing where this poor woman has to marry seven brothers and they all die, and then she dies and they get to heaven. Now the reason they tell the story this way is so that no accusation could be made that this uh, marriage was unrighteous. Each one of these men is fulfilling their, law, their role in the law of Moses. So they all get to heaven. These are all law-honoring uh, men and a law-honoring woman. Who is she married to? 
And Jesus says, hey, there is no, there is no marriage the way you understand it in heaven. That's not how it works. There's a reason, there's a reason that in our wedding vows here on earth, we say, tell death do us part, right? It's, it's different in heaven. Relationships are different in heaven. So he, he, he does, he, he denies their premise and says heaven is different than what you think. But he also doesn't let them skate on the idea here of the resurrection. What I love about Jesus is he is absolutely clear. Another little side note about the Sadducees is they only acknowledge the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as the Bible. They reject the prophets. They don't, they don't hold them in as high esteem or high authority as the, as the first five books of Moses. So Jesus gives them an answer as to why he believes in the resurrection from the Torah. I love that about Jesus. He goes, hey, listen, even your own teachings say this is true. Why are you being so dumb? So he goes to Torah, and he says that uh, the burning bush reveals himself to Moses. God says that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus says he is the God of the living, not the dead. And so he uses their own teaching to show that he, uh, the resurrection was true. So we see Jesus then pass the third test. Now, all of these things show us something. They all show us something. What does Jesus have? Authority. He has authority. Those who came to challenge him in his teaching and who he was, they couldn't stand. Jesus has authority. None dared question him anymore. So I always wondered, why did they need Judas? Why did they need Judas to... to uh, uh, betray Jesus. This is why. They couldn't do it in public because every time they challenged him in public, Jesus came out on top. Why? Because he had authority. He made it clear who he was. And in their defense of their own personal authority, they rejected all the signs that pointed to who Jesus was was. Now, I skipped this parable, and we're going to spend the rest of our time in this parable today. This parable really is Jesus' answer to the question, by what authority am I teaching these things? Let's dive in and see how Jesus presents this. Look at verses 9 through 18. It says, and he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. 
And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when the owner of the and what then did the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then? What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. What did they fear? The people. But what else did they perceive? They perceived that he had told this parable against them. Against them. So who does that make them in the parable? The religious leaders are the tenants in the parable. Now, there's many who want to broaden it and say that it's all of Israel who rejects Jesus. I don't think that changes the interpretation at all, so I would include them. It is, yes, all who reject uh, Jesus as Messiah, but it is specifically those who are, uh, who are uh, the religious leaders of the day. When Jesus gave this parable, they understood, they understood that it was against them. So if it's against them, then who are these uh, servants who come and warn them and tell them, actually, they just tell them to give to the, the master, to the owner. Hey, just give to the master, give to the owner, give, give what's due him, all right? This, this is the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament. And I think it could include John the Baptist and maybe even the New Testament apostles. Back in Luke chapter 11, Jesus had some pretty tough words for the teachers of the law. He said this in Luke 11. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them. And you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. So the religious leaders appeared appeared to be giving honor to the prophets, but at the end of the day, did they heed their teaching? They did not. What were the prophets sent to do? The prophets were sent to lead God's people into repentance and to true worship. But these people were continuing to use their authority to line their own pockets and make life better for themselves. They were not repentant. They continued on in wickedness and, and sin. 
And so Jesus is saying, listen, your fathers killed them, but you build their tombs. You, you also disregard what they're saying. So flip back now to the parable that we saw of the tenants. The first servant is sent, and he's abused. The second is sent, and he's abused. The third is sent, and he's abused. These people have rejected the authority of God. They have said, our way is best. We're going to use our position and our authority to serve ourselves. So then what does the father do? What does the owner of the vineyard do? The owner sends his son, the heir. Now, what do the people do? What do the tenants do when they see the heir coming? How, how do they respond? They decide they will kill the heir. Why? Because they believe if they kill the heir, they will get to keep the vineyard. If they kill the heir, it will be theirs. Now, when you hear that, does that make any sense? Because for it to be theirs, who would have to be dead? The owner. Now, there's some thought about, you know, well, a servant does inherit if there is no, if there is no heir. Okay, that's fine. But the owner's alive. Here's, here's what I want us to see. That they, they decided to reject, reject the authority of the owner to the point that they could kill the owner in order to defend their own interest. This was all about defending their own interest. They wanted to preserve for themselves what they were doing. They didn't want to give it up. It's a perfect symbol of an of a absence of repentance. If, if I acknowledge the authority of the Son, I now have to realize that I abused each one of those servants unjustly. I've rejected the authority they had as well. How does it continue? Look again at how Jesus ends the parable. Verse 15. And they threw him out of the vineyard, the son, and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? It's just, I love that. He will give them the, the vineyard as an inheritance. That's what they want. He's going to write them into his will. What a, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. That's what he's going to do. So here's my question. Did the rejection of these servants' authority change who, who had authority? No. Did the rejection of the son change who had authority? No. How do we know that? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. This whole section is about the authority of Jesus. By what authority do you do these things? As the son, he does all these things 
under the authority of the Father. Man, what we need to see is that despite their rejection of the Son, the religious leaders cannot escape the authority of the Father. Jesus is telling us that whether we recognize who he is, why he came, or the truth of his message, whether we recognize it or not, it is true. Our agreement on the facts has no bearing on the reality of the facts. You can indeed be wrong. He either is or he isn't the Son of God. And if he is, then rejecting him does not change the facts. The Father is coming, and we will answer to him regardless of how we view his authority and the authority of his Son. So how does the the parable end? What's the next part of the parable? Let's look at verses 16 through 18. It says, He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is a quote from Psalm 118. Jesus is referencing something that they would have known from Psalm 118. Jesus is the stone that is rejected. The religious leaders have rejected him. But that rejection does not keep him from doing what the Father has sent him to do. Jesus, the rejected one, has become the cornerstone of salvation. All salvation comes from Jesus Christ. He was rejected, but he is the cornerstone of salvation. But look how it continues. Rejection of the stone does not prevent accountability. Everyone who rejects the stone will fall on it or trip over it, or it will fall on them. In either way, those who reject the stone are crushed. This comes from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 13 through 15. It says this in Isaiah. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary. I want you to see the two things that he is. Okay? He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the house of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Jesus is the sanctuary of our salvation. He is our rock and our refuge, but the same rock that saves will be offensive to others. It will be a rock of stumbling 
People will trip over it. And those who do not take refuge in the salvation of Jesus will fall and be broken. Here's what we need to understand about the authority of Jesus. If he has that kind of authority, then we can trust that he can save. Amen? It truly is our refuge, our hope of salvation, because he has that kind of authority. If he says he's going to do it, then we can take him at his promises. He is faithful. He is not weak. He can do it. Whatever he sets out to accomplish, we can take as fact. It is accomplished. This is in John. It's not in Luke. But man, I love this. I referenced it last week. It speaks to Jesus' authority. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18. Whew, gets me excited. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. How much authority does Jesus have? No one takes it from him. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Woo! Let's go. This charge I have received from my Father. The stone that the builders, re builders rejected has become the cornerstone of our salvation. He has the authority to save. We can count on him. Man, that should give us hope. That should give us excitement. That should give us joy. And because Jesus knew, because he knew he had the authority to take his life back up again, he could walk into the mouth of the lion and go into the temple of Jerusalem, where all those opposed him, where all those rejected his authority, and he could teach the truth of the gospel with great authority, and all sat there and hung on every word he said. Amen? And no matter what they did to challenge his authority, no matter what traps they set, Jesus, Jesus proved his authority over and over again so that the only way they could kill Jesus was through betrayal and secrecy. Because on the facts, on his merit, there was no reason, no reason to kill Jesus. That's authority. That's authority. That is what our hope is in. Now, I want you to think about what Jesus did with John the Baptist for the, for the teachers of the law. He says, tell me, was the baptism of John the Baptist from heaven? And they knew if they said yes, they were going to have to acknowledge the rest of John's teaching. Do you believe Jesus has authority? Just authority to save? Or does he have all authority? Because if he has all authority, then what a joy and a privilege to walk in that authority in all areas of our life. We get to walk in obedience because it is his authority that saves. And do we believe that if he died to save our souls, that perhaps his commands and his teachings are for our good? 
that he has the authority to lead us in what is good and true and holy, that to follow him is a great delight and a blessing, if we really believe that Jesus is who he says that he is, if we really believe that he has this kind of authority, then when God uses his authority, we can see that it's for our good and his glory. Amen? For our good and his glory. What's the abuse of the authority that Jesus was challenging? That they were using their authority to serve themselves. Guys, why? Why as a culture are we so desperate, so desperate to maintain our own authority? Because we want to serve ourselves. We saw these tenants try to serve themselves and set themselves up as their own authority. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because God loves us, he has called us to himself. He is the king, and we get to live as citizens in the kingdom of God, under his rule, under his protection, under his authority, which is a good, good and gracious gift. Just like we use our authority over our children to help them, to steer them. God uses his authority to help us, to steer us, to protect us, to love us. If we believe he is who he says he is, then we should not see his authority as a burden, but as a precious gift, a gift of protection, a gift of love. So as we close and we move into our response time, I want you to ask yourself, are you seeking to run the vineyard for your own life? Are you delighting in keeping the vineyard for your own plans? What are you trying to protect by maintaining your own authority in your life? What inheritance do you think you can gain by rejecting God's authority? Ask yourself these questions. Who has authority in my life? Do I call him Lord? Do I believe he can save? If I believe he can save, do I believe that he can guide my steps? Do I trust him? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have authority. We thank you, Lord, that your authority is for our good and your glory. Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, appreciate the fact that you have authority over life and death, that because you raised from the dead, we can trust that you have the authority to call us back from the grave. We thank you, Lord, that you are the cornerstone of our salvation, that you may have been rejected by men, but you died the death that we deserved, and you rose from the dead, offering new life through faith in you. Father, I pray that as we move into this time of response, you would work in the hearts of the people. Whatever you need to do uh, to, to call them, draw them to yourself, to lead to conviction, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we sing these last couple songs, the altar is open. This is a place of prayer.